Bigger Insights Finance Podcast, where we'll help you build a life you don't need a vacation from. Let's talk about this transitory inflation that's turning out to be not so transitory. People in the financial space have been debating whether we're looking at inflationary or a deflationary problem ever since 2020. So let's shed some light on that. But first, let's go over a few quick caveats. We're going to be focusing on the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar within the United States. But much of this will probably be pretty applicable to other Western countries. We acknowledge that the CPI has been declining, and we expect it to cyclically decline until we fire up the old printing presses again. Our opinion is that the 2020s will prove to be inflationary, but we also expect to experience several disinflationary, possibly even deflationary periods throughout the decade. Also note that we wrote an article on this on our website, biggerinsights.com. That was produced August 1st, 2022. So go check that out if you're interested. If you're not on Spotify, we also produce video content for each episode, which you can watch on Spotify or our website. If you actually look at the CPI through the 40s and the 70s, which we acknowledge is pretty dubious, you know, people don't call it the CP lie for no reason, but if you look at it, you'll see what we're talking about regarding these cycles of inflation and deflation. When you unleash the inflation genie, it can be very difficult to put it back in the bottle. This is why you see these violent oscillations. You see policymakers trying to quell inflation without demolishing the economy. That's easier said than done. Just to be clear, we're not glorifying policymakers in any regard. We think what they're doing with monetary and fiscal policy is absolutely atrocious, and we would prefer to allow the free market to sort these problems out, but what do we know? But real quick, let's define inflation, disinflation, and deflation to make sure that we're all on the same page. We've listened to Lacey Hunt, Jim Rickards, Lynn Alden, Kathy Wood, Harry Dent, Peter Schiff, Ray Dalio, Warren Buffett, Rick Rule, Jim Rogers, Paul Tudor Jones, and others quite extensively. If you follow their work, you'll see that some of these characters are heavily in the inflation camp and others are in the deflation camp. Our conclusion from this is that they're all generally right. But the differences in their arguments largely boil down to semantics and timing. One of the most frustrating things about economics is how much time everyone spends arguing about semantics. We've listened to entire debates where one person says inflation is the expansion of the money supply and the other argues it's the CPI or some other measure of prices. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter because those are separate things. You know, we can call them whatever we want. We can call one of them an apple and the other a banana. So let's just be clear about how we're defining these terms when we have a discussion. If we're talking about money supply, let's talk money supply. If we're talking CPI, let's talk CPI. We like defining inflation as the expansion of money and credit because it's easy to define and measure. There is a link between the expansion of the money supply and certain prices. But this is where things get very gray because inflation can affect the prices of goods, services, and assets disproportionately depending on a number of factors like 
how the money is created, who gets it, the strength of the economy, and the velocity of that money. This explains why the CPI was relatively low in the 2010s, despite QE and other expansionary policies. There was price inflation, but not consumer price inflation. The price inflation was mostly in assets because QE was injecting money into Wall Street, not Main Street. But for the purpose of this episode, we're going to talk about inflation, disinflation, and deflation in terms of consumer prices relative to the Fed's 2% target. So in other words, if we use the Fed's 2% CPI target as our baseline, we're arguing that we expect the United States dollar to lose purchasing power in terms of goods and services within the U.S. at an annualized rate faster than 2% over this decade. Let's also distinguish purchasing power from the United States dollar index or the DXY. We define purchasing power in terms of what goods and services Americans can actually buy with their dollars, not in terms of the DXY. The DXY can be very misleading because all it really does is report the strength of the dollar relative to other fiat currencies that often have larger issues. This is kind of like how you shouldn't compare yourself to others. You may think to yourself, yeah, well, you know, my net worth is only $8,000, but most people I know are broke, so I'm actually doing relatively well. We don't like that attitude in life or when it comes to the dollar. For most people, it doesn't really matter how high the DXY is if they're struggling to afford basic necessities because the dollar is losing so much purchasing power in reality. And just as a little side quest, you might be wondering why the Fed has this 2% target. As far as we can tell, they pretty much just made this up. Most people seem to agree that 3% is too high, so they probably figure that they can just get away with 2% without anyone really noticing or whining about it. This reminds me of that meme with that kid at the science fair. He was standing next to this project board that said, how much sawdust can you put in a Rice Krispie treat before people notice? This is the Fed scam. How much purchasing power can we steal before people notice? And they think that that rate is 2%. So to wrap that up, we're defining inflation as loss of purchasing power, deflation as a gain in purchasing power, and disinflation as the slowing of the rate of inflation in this episode. All right, so now what we're going to do is go over several inflationary pressures so you can understand where we stand on this issue. We're also going to go over some deflationary pressures later on in this episode to play devil's advocate. The first inflationary pressure is our mountains of debt. We're sure that Lacey Hunt would cringe over us saying that, because non-productive debt is generally a drag on your purchasing power. If you're in a lot of debt right now, you know how this feels. However, that's because you don't have a printing press. But imagine for a moment that all of your debts were denominated in a currency that you could print. Would you pay all of that back responsibly? Or would you print some money and inflate some of that debt away? We're pretty confident that you would choose the latter, and we're very confident that our overlords in Washington will do the same. We are an over-indebted country, 
And the history of over-indebted nations is very clear. They almost always print their way out. When a government has too much debt, there are two primary ways of addressing this. They can handle this the honest way, which is a default to nominal terms, which means you either underpay your creditors or just don't pay them at all. Option two is the dishonest way. You default on your obligations in real terms by printing money and paying your debts in devalued currency. History also shows that the U.S. is no stranger to this phenomenon. In fact, we had very similar levels of debt as a percentage of GDP in the 1940s. How did we get ourselves out of that hole, you might be wondering? We devalued the dollar. Why would this time be any different? To make matters worse, we don't just have high levels of government debt. We also have high levels of corporate and personal debt. If interest rates were allowed to rise to free market levels, this would all but bankrupt the government, many corporations, and a large portion of the U.S. population. Needless to say, we just don't see that happening because that would be political suicide. Instead, we think that inflating our collective debts away is much more likely. However, we also acknowledge that our mountains of debt in the United States may eventually result in deflation, but we don't think that that's really going to happen until the rest of the world decides to stop allowing us to print our way out of our problems. We just don't see that as being a likely scenario in the 2020s. Now let's talk about monetary and fiscal policy and how this got us into this inflationary mess that we're dealing with right now. Monetary and fiscal policy are large contributors to inflation. Let's talk about why inflation is so high at the present time. Although there are many factors, we believe these are the largest ones. One, increasing aggregate demand. We increased aggregate demand dramatically in the COVID era with both fiscal and monetary support. We saw stimulus checks, PPP loans, mortgage forbearance, rent moratoriums, expanded unemployment, expanded child tax credit, and so on. On the monetary side, we saw monetization of fiscal spending, recklessly accommodative policy, and being way behind the curve due to the false belief that inflation was just transitory. So not only did we just make it rain helicopter money, but we also dramatically reduced the expenses of a lot of Americans. This gave them an unprecedented artificial boost to their purchasing power, so they went out and spent money like drunken sailors. But wait, there's more. In addition to dramatically increasing aggregate demand, we also dramatically reduced supply of goods and services. Because believe it or not, when you lock down the economy and impose other restrictions and mandates, that reduces the supply of labor and goods and services. So picture this, we had, you know, millions of people sitting at home on the couch with fake money pouring into their checking account from the government. They couldn't really do a whole lot because of the lockdown. So what did they do? They just went on a big spending spree. This was a real double whammy. So it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that we had inflation. And you might not think that that's a big deal because Maybe you didn't get much because your income's a little bit higher or something like that. But just keep in mind that we increased M2 money supply 
approximately 40% during this time. That's not a typo. That's 40%, four zero. And we're of the opinion that this story probably isn't over. We could very well see further supply and demand imbalances due to any number of things like a new pandemic or COVID variant, a dramatic increase in military spending due to escalations in Ukraine or Taiwan, some form of universal basic income, student loan forgiveness, reparations, CBDC, or additional climate spending. A CBDC is a central bank digital currency. We're probably going to do a separate episode on that, but the major concern there is that if we do get a CBDC, that it will be used for highly inflationary monetary policies. So let's put our detective hats on and ask the question, qui bono? Qui bono is a Latin phrase meaning, to whom is it a benefit? The question is, does the government benefit from inflation or deflation? Because it stands to reason that they're going to err on the side that benefits their interests. There are two sides to every transaction. When it comes to debt, there's a creditor and a debtor. Inflation benefits the debtor because it allows the debtor to pay back his creditor with less purchasing power. As Jim Rogers likes to say, the U.S. is the biggest debtor nation in the history of the world, so it's obviously beneficial to the U.S. government to promote inflationary policies. The federal government benefits tremendously from inflation for the following reasons. One, it can buy votes with money it doesn't have by debasing the currency. Two, capital gains taxes increase because assets are artificially inflated. Keep in mind that capital gains are calculated in nominal terms. So if we have 10% inflation, you buy a stock for $100 and sell it a year later for $110, you haven't made a single penny in terms of purchasing power, but you would still need to pay taxes on that $10. The third reason is that our progressive tax system robs income earners in an inflationary environment by artificially pushing them up into higher tax brackets. Inflation also artificially increases people's nominal wages, which pushes them out of certain deductions and credits that they may have otherwise received. And the fifth reason is because inflation erodes the value of certain government obligations, like social security payments, for example. And right now you might be thinking, well, that's not quite true because the tax brackets and the deductions and credits and transfer payments and stuff are all indexed to the CPI. And that's basically true, but the question is how accurate is the CPI? And we'll probably go over this in a separate episode, but we don't agree with the CPI. We think it dramatically understates the real rate of inflation which again goes back to the question, who benefits? The government benefits. If they can tell you that the inflation rate is 2%, then they can get away with increasing your social security and other payments by 2%, when in reality it's more like 4 or 5%, then they get to pocket the spread. So they have a huge incentive to understate the CPI. So yes, they are going to index the social security payments to the CPI to some degree, But we would bet that for the younger people who are listening to this, by the time you retire, those checks probably aren't going to have nearly as much purchasing power as they do today. 
So to wrap up this inflationary pressure, that being the government's incentive to create inflation, it's very clear to us that they can create inflation and they greatly benefit from it. So why would they not take advantage of that? That's our question to you. Do you believe that the government will refrain from creating inflation because being fiscally responsible is the right thing to do? We give that a very low probability. The next inflationary pressure we see is geopolitical tensions. You know, despite the fact that inflation was a major and growing problem before the invasion of Ukraine, Biden likes to refer to this as Putin's price hike. We're pleased to see that no one with a pulse bought this political theater, so putting the blame for our inflation on Putin didn't last very long. But we can admit that the war in Ukraine certainly isn't helping the inflation issue. And I hate to say it, but we believe that this conflict is far from over. We're not suggesting that this specific issue in Ukraine won't settle down anytime soon, but we see tensions rising, not falling. Even if we do come to some sort of peace agreement in Ukraine, we think that we're going to see other conflicts potentially involving China, Taiwan, and the U.S. more directly. If we do, this will add more gas to the inflationary fire by taking commodities offline, hindering supply chains, and how are we going to pay for all this? You guessed it, with mouse click money. And there are several reasons why we think tensions are increasing. One is the weaponization of the U.S. dollar and the SWIFT system. We obviously don't condone conflict, but one of the key properties of a global reserve currency is that it should be neutral. As soon as that changes, it creates serious concerns for dollar holders outside of the U.S., particularly in those nations that don't exactly see eye to eye with the U.S. The U.S. has also seized boats and other assets from Russian citizens. This is completely bizarre. I mean, imagine the hell that would have broken loose if some government was seizing assets from American citizens because we invaded Iraq or dropped drone strikes in God knows how many countries now. We bring this up because we think there's going to be serious backlash over this over the longer term. We also recognize that what's going on in Ukraine is far from a dispute just between Ukraine and Russia. There are a lot of cooks in this kitchen now. There are so many players and so much money that this is really looking like a proxy war between the East and the West, where Ukraine just happens to be the epicenter. If this really is the case, it probably won't stop with Ukraine. And we could go on forever on that, so we'll just stop it there. We might do an episode on that in more detail in the future. But now let's move on to commodity shortages. The thing that you need to understand about the commodity sector is that it's highly cyclical. It goes through these very large boom and bust cycles because when commodity prices are high, it attracts a huge amount of capital and investment that brings a tremendous amount of new commodities online, which makes the prices go down like a stone. What's important about that is one of the reasons why inflation was so low in the 2010s was because consumers were blessed with very low commodity prices due to a large oversupply from prior years. However, those chickens are going to come home to roost because 
one of the consequences of those low commodity prices was a chronic and large underinvestment in commodity production. We started to see these cracks appear in 2021 and 2022 in the energy space. One of the reasons why we were seeing such high gas and diesel prices was because we've been neglecting our refinery capacity for decades. Last I heard, we haven't built any new meaningful refining capacity in the United States for something like 40 years. Part of that may be due to environmental and political constraints, but the other part is falling energy prices over the last several years. We came across a very interesting chart just the other day, which showed the relative values of equities and commodities. Historically, commodities are very cheap today, at least relative to equities. It stands to reason that due to this, our lack of investment in the commodity space and the geopolitical tensions that we discussed, commodity prices will probably rise in this decade. Many are even going as far as to say that we're entering the next commodity super cycle. However, even if they rise only by a reasonable amount, this will significantly add to inflation. Now you might be thinking, okay, well, that's fine. You know, commodity prices might rise a little bit, but then you know the free market will come to the rescue and bring new supply to the market and those prices will come back down. And that might be true to some degree, but one of the things that you need to recognize is that bringing new commodities online can take years or decades in normal circumstances. You know, many mines, for example, take something like 10 to 15 years to start producing. And again, that's in normal times. These are not normal times. We're seeing increasing hostility toward mining and even farming in the name of climate change. But just think about that for a minute. You know, we all want our solar panels and windmills and Teslas and things like that. But you can't have any of those things without major mining operations. It's getting very difficult to start and operate a mine, not to mention all the equipment that's used for mining is powered by oil, which nobody wants to drill for. So how is this supposed to work? They say that the cure for high prices is high prices, in that higher prices bring new supply to the market, which depresses prices, but we think it's not going to be as effective as it normally is. The next time the global economy starts to boom, we are quite confident that commodity shortages are going to be a very serious issue, which will increase inflation. Now let's talk about supply chains and deglobalization. When governments around the world locked down their economies, this caused massive damage. To make things look better than they actually were, we just papered it over by injecting trillions into the economy. However, we don't believe that we'll fully feel the effects of those lockdowns for years to come. One does not simply turn an economy on and off like a light switch. It's not that simple. Many businesses that took years to build were destroyed in the process, which is still playing out. Some companies that were able to scrape by are now on the verge of bankruptcy again because interest rates have gone way up and lending standards are very tight. This may increase inflation because it reduces the availability of goods and services. Let's say you own a small trucking company that went out of business because of the lockdowns, high diesel prices, and other issues. 
that puts upward pressure on the cost of shipping goods because now there are fewer trucks to move those goods. And this isn't just a U.S. problem, this is a worldwide issue. If you follow the news at all, you've probably heard people talking about deglobalization, onshoring, reshoring, nearshoring, and friendshoring. These are all just fancy terms for bringing production closer to home. We're not quite sure to what extent that's actually going to play out, but to the extent that it does, that's going to increase prices. You know, we don't make PCBs and bicycles and things like that in China for no reason. We don't make them there because we like them. We do it because it's one of the cheapest options that we have. So if we're going to move that production to Mexico or the U.S. or Canada or wherever, that's going to increase the price. Just as an example, there's a company called Purism that makes electronics. And one of those items that they make is called the Librem 5, which is a phone. At least as of July 30th, 2022, the internationally created version of the Librem 5 is $1,300, whereas the version that's made here in the United States is $2,000. This is the cost of deglobalization. Now, if you read the deglobalization section of this post on our website, we basically express that. We didn't think that this was going to have that big of an effect on inflation because let's face it, you know, if you go to Target or Walmart or something and you're going to buy a bicycle for little Johnny, you're going to look at the price. You're not going to care about where it was made or what supply chain was involved. You're going to look at the price. So if you see bike A, which was made in China and is $300, or you look at the exact same bike that was made in Canada for $500, you know, which one are you going to buy? So from a market standpoint, we're not really of the opinion that deglobalization is going to be a huge issue as far as inflation is concerned. But what we weren't really thinking too much about, and we didn't really express in our blog post, is that deglobalization might end up being a big deal artificially as a matter of government policy. What's going on in the chips sector is a perfect example. As a consumer, You probably don't care where your GPU or CPU comes from, but the government is pushing hard to move that production away from China and toward the United States. There are legitimate reasons for that, like national defense, for example, but it is possible that consumers will end up bearing the cost of this whether they like it or not. And this issue may not be limited to chips. We expect to see tensions between East and West resulting in less efficient supply chains, more tariffs, and other inefficiencies that increase consumer prices. We're going to talk briefly now about CBDCs, but like I said earlier, we may go over this in more detail in a future episode. There is a fair chance that we will have CBDCs imposed on us in the 2020s. We say imposed because It doesn't seem like anyone outside of the governments and central banks actually want this. But from an inflation perspective, let's just put our evil genius hats on and imagine what the government or central bank can do with a CBDC. One, enforce negative interest rates all the way down to the individual level. So right now, the Fed sets the federal funds rate, which is obviously very blunt because that affects basically the entire world. But with the CBDC, 
Not only could they force people to accept negative interest rates in that they just programmatically take money out of your wallet on a regular basis, but they could do this at different rates for different people. The second thing that a CBDC could do is allow the central bank to create loans directly to increase broad money supply rather than rely on lending by commercial banks. Normally, a large portion of newly created money comes from commercial bank lending. However, when the economy starts to slow down, so does commercial lending because commercial banks are bound somewhat by reality. They have a real profit and loss that they need to worry about, but the central bank does not, so they could create an infinite number of loans to anybody for any reason. Oh, you want $100 trillion to go fight climate change? Sure, why not? I mean, this is all fake anyway, so why not? The third thing that a CBDC would allow a central bank to do is force its holders to spend money and increase velocity by imposing automatic expiration dates on the money itself. So they could programmatically set rules like, hey, for every penny that goes into your wallet, you have to spend it within 30 days or 60 days or whatever, or else we'll just take it from you. That would also be inflationary. Another concern we have is that a CBDC would make it very easy for the government to spend massive amounts of money indirectly by mandating the Fed use CBDCs to address basically any agenda. Universal basic income, climate change, inequality, racism, sexism, reparations, on and on. That might sound like a joke, and we wish it was, but we already do hear the Fed talk about their role in addressing climate change, despite the fact that their role has nothing to do with the climate. Now, we're not lawyers, but in fairness, as far as we know, the Federal Reserve Act prohibits the Fed from dealing directly with individuals, which makes a CBDC basically illegal in the United States. However, if you really sit down and think about how beneficial a CBDC would be to the Fed and the government, we don't really see this as being that much of a roadblock. But let's be honest, a CBDC is a central planner's dream come true. So don't count on a few words on a piece of paper to protect you from a CBDC. All right, now it's time to play devil's advocate and talk about some deflationary pressures. The first being the effects of debt on growth and inflation. Dr. Lacey Hunt frequently points out that debt is deleterious to growth. He argues that our high levels of national debt and fiscal spending will be a deflationary drag on growth and inflation. And on paper, he's correct. But again, the pertinent question is timing. At what point will our monetary and fiscal policies tighten sufficiently to enable structural deflation? We're not sure, but if recent history is any indicator, we'll kick that can down the road for as long as possible. One of the most important lessons that we've learned in macroeconomics is to not underestimate how long the government can keep an unsustainable system going. This reminds me of the old quote, markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. But yes, at some point, our debt will come back to haunt us. The question is, how much longer can we keep inflating asset bubbles by QE and deficit spending? 
If we were any other country, we would say that we're probably at the end of the road. But considering the dollar's world reserve currency status, we think that the U.S. can and will keep kicking this can down the road for many years to come. The next time we enter a major recession, we fully expect interest rates to drop to zero and the government to ramp up deficit spending. It is possible that our politicians will come to their senses and refrain from doing this, in which case that would be highly deflationary, but we assign that a very low probability. However, it is something worth considering because of how sticky inflation has been. Another important consideration, which is something that investors need to keep a close eye on, is how government spending is financed. If the government borrows from Americans, this is technically deflationary. In this case, every dollar being spent into the economy had to be borrowed from the economy first, then interest would need to be paid on that. However, if Americans don't want to buy government debt, then we expect the Federal Reserve to pick up the slack, in which case that would be very inflationary. So again, keep a close eye on that because that's a very important distinction. It's not enough to just look at how much the government is spending, but where is that money coming from? We're very concerned about this because a lot of larger investors like foreigners and institutions have actually been net sellers of treasuries in recent years. The last time we checked, only retail investors were net buyers, which is actually pretty terrifying if you think about it. What if those retail investors stop buying treasuries or they join the selling party as well? Our only way out of that would either be for interest rates to go way up to attract new buyers or the Fed would have to step in. The second deflationary pressure that we're going to talk about is the declining velocity of money. Jim Rickards regularly points to the consistent trends in declining money velocity as being deflationary. And this is correct, because let's face it, you could have all the money in the world, but if you're not spending it, it can't drive up prices. So as investors, we have to accept the risk that money velocity will continue to decline or at least be anemic, and that'll help keep a lid on inflation. However, just to play devil's devil's advocate, or devil's advocate squared, the government knows how to increase velocity. So if we really go into a decline where low velocity is a major problem, what really is there to stop them from sending out stimmy checks, instituting UBI, forgiving student loan debt, or conjuring up some reason to start World War III and spend a bunch of money like there's no tomorrow. All right, deflationary pressure number three, the reverse wealth effect. We're exiting what Rick Rule describes as 40 years of benign economic conditions. By this, he's referring to the secular trend of declining interest rates in the United States from the 1980s until about 2022. When interest rates fall, especially from such high levels, you know, they reached like 20% in the 80s, then magical things happen. Stock prices rise, bond prices rise, home prices rise, and so on. This had a major wealth effect for many Americans for decades. However, after 40 years, we finally crashed into the zero bound. You can't get much lower than 0% interest rates. 
Of course, there's really not a whole lot stopping the delicate geniuses at the Fed from trying negative rates, but that's not our base case as of now. So if falling interest rates are positive for asset prices and higher asset prices provide a wealth effect, it stands to reason that we may need to bring interest rates back to reality, which would depress asset prices and likely reduce spending to some degree. That would be deflationary. For those who aren't familiar with the wealth effect, this is essentially that people tend to spend more money when their assets are rising in value, which implies that they'll likely spend less money when they see their assets falling in value. We emphasize this because this could actually be a big deal. The U.S. economy is highly financialized. So if something pricks this everything bubble that we're in, this could trigger a doom loop, so to speak, where asset prices decline, which reduces spending, which causes assets to decline even further, and so on. This is also a high risk because there are a lot of boomers entering retirement. If they start to get the impression that their assets may be in trouble, they could sell them en masse and trigger a deflationary bust. Deflationary pressure number four, monetary and fiscal policy. Our base case is that monetary and fiscal policy will err on the side of inflation in the 2020s. However, we must accept the possibility that monetary and fiscal policy may be unexpectedly restrictive. For the first time in decades, politicians are starting to learn that there are real consequences to spending money like there's no tomorrow. We saw this with the blockage of the first version of Build Back Better, and the politicians are now talking about making spending cuts as part of this debt ceiling debate. That is a positive development because we really need to get fiscal spending under control. If we don't, we're going to have a major, major inflation problem on our hands. But if we do get it under control, that would be somewhat deflationary. Now let's talk about technology. Advancements in technology are usually deflationary because they make us more productive. We can get by with less and therefore we can charge lower prices. If you listen to Kathy Wood and others, we're not just going to single her out, but they talk an awful lot about EVs and other technology as being some huge deflationary threat. We're not quite sure where they're coming from on that. Ironically, a lot of the technology that they talk about, like Teslas, for example, are actually quite expensive last time we checked. We don't anticipate that technology will cause deflation in the 2020s, but acknowledge that it's possible. Just think about how much purchasing power the dollar has lost since the invention of the internet. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I do remember life before the internet, and I remember things like $1 gas and people buying a week's worth of groceries for about 25 bucks. But think about how much more productive the internet has made us. It's difficult to believe that EVs, cryptos, and other technologies that are being developed today are going to surpass the deflationary effects that we experienced with the introduction of the internet, so we just don't expect this to have a major influence. One should also consider how the CPI is calculated. About 40% of it is housing alone, which 
we don't see being significantly impacted by EVs or other technology anytime soon. The last deflationary pressure we're going to touch on is demand destruction. We're actually starting to see this here in May of 2023. Consumers are starting to max out their credit cards and will probably start cutting back their spending soon. This will indeed provide some deflationary pressure, but it's difficult to estimate how much of this will be offset by the supply-side issues we discussed earlier, as well as reopening in China. Many of our expenses are actually relatively fixed. I mean, just think about the things that you spend your money on. If they started to go up quite a bit, how much can you really cut? I mean, you need to eat, you need to charge or put gas in your car, you need to heat your home. So you're probably going to do whatever you have to, to pay whatever those things cost. To that end, we like what we've heard others say, which is that you'll probably see deflation in the things that you want, but inflation in the things that you need. So with all this talk of money printing and debt monetization and whatnot, this begs the question, could we in the United States actually experience hyperinflation? We do accept this as a possibility in the 2020s, but it's definitely not our base case for a few reasons. For one, our debts are denominated in the U.S. dollar, which we obviously have quite a bit of control over. The U.S. dollar is the world's primary reserve currency, which also helps us service our debts because foreigners are more willing to take our printed dollars than other currencies. And the third reason is, despite the U.S. government's reckless monetary and fiscal policies, much of the rest of the world continues to provide strong demand for the U.S. dollar. There is a lot of chatter in the news and on FinTwit and whatnot about the world dumping the dollar, but we just don't think that that's going to happen in the 2020s. That's something that's going to take a long time to play out. However, we should mention that the United States dollar is not immune to hyperinflation. We cannot continue papering our problems over forever at some point, and we don't know when that will be. Gresham's law will kick in, and U.S. dollar holders will start dumping them to buy up tangible assets to protect their purchasing power. We're not quite sure what would trigger that or how close we are, but this is worth discussing given the staggering amounts of growth in M2 money supply that we've experienced since the GFC. It's becoming clear that QE and 0% interest rates are not as effective as they used to be, so this begs the question, what happens when it no longer works? Will our politicians let the market sort things out, which would be deflationary, or will they continue trying to inflate our troubles away, which would lead to hyperinflation? All right, so to start wrapping things up, let's talk about what this all means. For average Americans, you need to start thinking about protecting your purchasing power. This is especially pertinent for those who are in or near retirement. We would like to reiterate that we believe that the 2020s will be inflationary in aggregate, but also that there will be significant volatility in the CPI. So during periods of inflation, we have five tips for you to consider to protect your purchasing power. Number one, keep your spending to a minimum and save some money. Not only will there be deals later on, 
but inflation can lead to job losses, so you're going to want to make sure that you have some dry powder. The second is to keep your skills sharp so that you can negotiate with your employer. If your employer is unable or unwilling to adequately compensate you, start looking elsewhere. The third tip is to spend a little bit more time shopping around. Some restaurants and other businesses are really milking the whole price inflation thing, whereas others are being more reasonable about it. I hear a lot of people complaining about this, but if some business is ripping you off, just take your business elsewhere. The fourth tip is to invest some of your savings in inflation hedges, which we'll talk about in a minute. And the final inflationary tip is that if you have low interest debt, consider making minimum payments. This allows inflation to erode some of your debt obligations away. You know, if inflation is 5%, for example, and your mortgage is 3%, it makes quite a bit of sense for you to make the minimum payments. When we go through disinflationary or deflationary periods, which it kind of feels like we're in right now, we have some tips for you as well. If interest rates decline, consider refinancing your mortgage. You can do this to either lock in a lower interest rate or to extract some equity to pay off higher interest debt like credit card debt. The other deflationary tip is to take advantage of lower prices when you can, but don't overdo it. As the economy starts to roll over, we will see some discounted items like refrigerators or shoes or something like that. So take advantage of that when it makes sense. But in general, whether we're in an inflationary period or deflationary period, we have two recommendations for consumers. One is to strengthen your balance sheet. And more specifically, keep consumer and discretionary debt to a minimum. We expect the 2020s to be a rough decade for many Americans, particularly those of lower income and assets. Maintaining a strong balance sheet will provide a cushion if things turn against you, as well as provide the ability to capitalize on the opportunities that this presents. We also think it's a good idea to maintain a significant stock of everyday necessities like toilet paper and toothpaste and so on. In addition to saving time and energy by reducing the number of trips you have to make to the store, this can also help you during periods of price hikes or supply shortages. Now we're going to talk about a few tips for investors. Given that we expect inflation to be volatile, it would be prudent for investors to monitor economic conditions and remain flexible. Overall, we expect traditional inflation hedges to perform fairly well in this decade, which may include energy like oil, gas, and coal. Nuclear fuels will probably also do well, but if they do, we expect that to be less about inflation and more to do with other factors like reactor restarts, for example. Some other hedges may include real estate, although you might want to be careful about office buildings and shopping malls and things like that, but also consider agricultural commodities, precious metals, and particularly gold, and potentially other metals. Now, that can get a little bit tricky because certain metals like copper and steel are very cyclical. So if inflation causes enough demand destruction, there may be relatively weak demand, although that might be counteracted by our energy transition. 
So as far as metals are concerned, we're a little bit more interested in precious metals at the moment because we do have some concerns about demand for more industrial metals. Now, what about stocks, you might be thinking? You know, it's often suggested that stocks are good inflation hedges, but this isn't necessarily the case. You know, if we look at the 1970s, for example, the S&P 500 did produce nominal gains, but real losses when you adjust for inflation. This must have been very painful for stock investors because not only did they have losses in real terms, but then they had to pay capital gains taxes on that phantom capital gains income that they had during this time. But how inflation affects earnings is actually a little bit complicated. Investors should be cautious of stocks in an inflationary environment and be pickier about which stocks they invest in because some companies just won't be able to pass higher costs onto consumers. But like I said, investors need to be flexible, period. So for example, even though we're expecting inflation throughout this decade, my personal portfolio as of the time of this recording actually has a deflationary bias to it. And that's because the economy is slowing down and we expect the Federal Reserve to drop interest rates dramatically to prevent a deflationary bust in the not-too-distant future. When that happens, we expect bonds, especially long treasury bonds, to rally, and stocks will probably fall quite a bit. At that point, I'll probably be looking to sell those bonds and buy riskier assets because we have a strong feeling that we're going to react to this slowing economy by injecting trillions of dollars back into it, just like we did in the GFC. All right, that's it for this episode. We want to repeat that although we are in a disinflationary period right now, we expect the 2020s to be inflationary in aggregate. As always, nothing in our podcast should be construed as financial, investment, or other advice, but we hope that you found this episode to be helpful. We provide one-on-one consulting services to clients like you to help them achieve their financial goals. If you're interested, go to our website, biggerinsights.com, and fill out the short form at the bottom of the page so we can schedule your initial consultation. Otherwise, make sure you subscribe and share this podcast. Thanks for staying until the end. Go protect your purchasing power and have a great rest of your day.